Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. I want to start the program this week with a comment on the fact that the government here in Israel has placed restrictions on the entry into the country because of the pandemic. Now, that includes preventing Jews to come to Israel from various places in the diaspora. Now, diaspora Jewry has played a key role in Israel's growth and development in times of crisis, prosperity, war, terrorist attacks, and diplomatic challenges. Diaspora Jewry has always stood by Israel. Since the pandemic and its multiple waves entered our lives, the government has implemented numerous public health protection and prevention measures including a policy that bans the entry of visitors who do not hold Israeli citizenship. The continuation of strict regulations and limitations may result in undermining the unique connection between diaspora Jewry and Israel. Their pilot trips, the arrival of parents of lone soldiers, participation in family and religious and educational events, they form the basis of the integral and eternal connection between the Jewish people and the land of Israel. Back in 2008, the government passed a resolution on assisting Jewish communities in the diaspora in emergency situations. We have a responsibility to treat this pandemic and its consequences seriously, and now is the time to apply that decision. The government must ensure that the gates of our homeland remain open to Jews seeking to visit Israel or explore the possibility of making Aliyah. The, the, the principle of collective responsibility has guided us for generations to preserve it Decision-makers should come up with a fair and reasonable solution to those who have stood by the state. This is important. We must retain our relationship with the diaspora. I'll be back after the break. The return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel was prophesied in the Bible thousands of years ago and is coming true today. Shalom. Join me, Josh Wander, on Israel Unplugged. Listen in as we delve into the spiritual and physical aspects of the Jewish return to Zion. We'll discuss the biblically mandated, historic, and of course practical understandings of this incredible transition from exile to redemption. That's Israel Unplugged every Monday on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. 
You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few words about the United Nations Organization's war on Jewish Jerusalem. The United Nations has shown a determination to sever all Jewish association with Jerusalem. This constitutes a denial of history, an infraction against self-determination under international law, and a violation of the indigenous rights in ancestral lands. The UN General Assembly recently adopted the Jerusalem Resolution disavowing Jewish ties to the Temple Mount, referring it solely by its Muslim name, Aharam al-Sharif. This was pretty much business as usual at the UN, the continuation of a campaign to erase the Jewishness of Jerusalem, and indeed the UN's cultural arm, UNESCO, engaged in the same act of cultural colonization back in 2016, when it then referred to the Temple Mount only by its Arabic name. This new Jerusalem resolution not only neglects the use of Hebrew name for the holiest site in Jerusalem, but also repudiates all of Israel's claims on Jerusalem. This UN resolution asserts that any actions taken by Israel, the occupying power, to impose its laws, jurisdiction, and administration on the holy city of Jerusalem is illegal. Further, the resolution reiterates that Israel's basic law on Jerusalem and the proclamation of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel were null and void and must be rescinded forthwith, as well as its previous resolutions on Jerusalem. The 1980 Basic Law back here in Israel states that Jerusalem completed and, unite, and united as the capital of Israel, and that Jerusalem is the seat of the President of Israel, the Knesset, the government, and the Supreme Court. It also makes provision for the protection of holy places and for the ongoing development of Jerusalem. Israel further strengthened this law back in 2018 with the passing of its 14th basic law, Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people, in which it reaffirmed, among other things, that the land of Israel is the historical homeland of the Jewish people, the state of Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people, and predictably, various human rights organizations challenged the basic law in the Israeli courts, but in July 2021, the Supreme Court of Israel largely rejected their petitions, stating that the basic law did not introduce anything new, but merely stated the obvious, that the state of Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people, and this was the premise on which the state was established. And this is enshrined in our proclamation of independence. So the Supreme Court ruling affirmed the constitutionality of the basic laws, which recognized that the right to national self-determination in the state of Israel is unique to the Jewish people. And it enshrines principles already evident in regular legislation that reflect the Jewish character of the state. These include the state symbols, the emblem, national anthem, the state capital, Jewish immigration, holidays such as Remembrance Day, and so forth. 
So the UN attack on Jewish Jerusalem is simply part of its wider anti-Israel strategy, seeking to undermine and delegitimize the only Jewish state in the world. The United Nations is well known with its demographic makeup largely ensuring an automatic majority for every anti-Israel resolution proposed. The UN's position not only flies in the face of 3,000 years of Jewish history here, but it also blatantly contradicts its own position on the rights of indigenous peoples. It was in the land of Israel that Jewish people developed its unique culture and religious practices. It clearly fulfills the criteria of indigenous peoples according to the UN's own definitions. Self-identification, historical continuity, uh, strong links to territories and surrounding natural resources, distinct social, economic, or political systems, distinct language, culture, and beliefs, resolve to maintain and reproduce ancestral environments and systems as distinct communities. It is more than a mere discourtesy to avoid using the Jewish names and terms, the United Nations is directly contradicting its own declaration on the rights of indigenous people it was passed in 2007. By now, they're denying Jewish indigenous rights pertaining to their lands, their territories, resources, including those which were tra traditionally owned or otherwise occupied, so by its anti-historical and unjust declarations, the United Nations merely discredits itself and undermines its, its status as a human rights body. Jews are undeniably the indigenous people of Jerusalem, a claim supported by historical, archaeological, and genetic evidence. Jerusalem, otherwise known as Zion, is the holy city of the Jewish people. Israel's declaration of Jerusalem as its complete and united capital city should be supported by all who care about indigenous peoples and their rights. If the UN were to apply some uh, to some good purpose, only energy expended against Jews and their ancient and, and indissoluble connection to Jerusalem, a lot of good would be achieved in the world. So in a sense, you would expect people of goodwill everywhere to urge their respected governments to stand on the side of truth and justice and let the UN know how they feel about this. Unfortunately, this is not happening. The UN is willing to contradict its own rules in order to defame Jerusalem and the Jewish people. And that is simply wrong, and it's a mark of Cain on the UN. I want to switch now to another subject, uh, but it's pretty much related to what I just said previously. Uh, our defense minister uh, arrived in Rabat, Morocco, to sign a security and intelligence agreement between Israel and Morocco. A little more than a year ago, such an official official visit, let alone the signing of a mutual cooperation agreement, would have been unthinkable. And by the way, the Moroccan press largely covered it as an important event. It is the latest in some 20 agreements signed between Israel and Morocco. 
New institutions have been created, including the Morocco-Israel Business Council, the Moroccan-Israel Chamber of Industry, which will allow Israelis and Moroccans to meet each other and strike business deals. Trade between Israel and Morocco has surged up by 50% since, since the beginning of 2021. Nor is Morocco alone among the Arab states. Under the Abraham Accords, three other Arab lands have officially made peace with Israel and opened their borders to merchants, traders, and pilgrims. This year marked the second year in a row that Jews openly celebrated Hanukkah in the United Arab Emirates. Arab tourists are visiting Israel in increasing numbers. Uh, this year, some hundreds of, of thousands of Israeli tourists have booked hotels in Morocco. Israeli investment in the Gulf Arab states is fueling high-tech startups, while Arab investment in both Israel and the territories is growing rapidly. Less than two years ago, most Arab nations would not admit travelers who had Israeli stamps in their passport. This, that restriction is now gone and Arabs and Israelis have visited each other. Indeed, all of these things have become so common that they're no longer remarked upon. This normalization process is being carefully watched across North Africa and the Middle East. The best way to bring more Arab nations into this fold is with the relentless march of completely normal events. Friendships struck at business events, visiting students, scholars, quietly learning how we, what each other country is like, and diplomats and generals working across borders to stop anarchists. So this cumulative impact of these events will do more to increase the momentum of the peace process than any speech or sermon. So Israel is the Abraham Accords made all of things a real possibility for the first time since the creation of Israel back in 1948. As a matter of fact, young Arabs, more than 60% of Arabs are too young to remember the 1967 and 1973 wars with Israel, and many more are now considered them to be ancient history. So as a result, young Arabs widely accept Israel's existence as a given, and generally view trade with Israel uh, to help their own economy. They want ordinary things. What do the Arabs want? The young Arabs, they want a steady job, a school, a safe street, and a durable reason to hope that things will get better. All this has come about. So despite the UN and its inability to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital, good things are happening on the ground. And these good things are bringing peace and stability to the Middle East. Hopefully, these things will continue, particularly because the young generation in the Arab world simply has no memory of the, of the uh, Six-Day War. So let's continue on from here. I'll be back after the break.
Hi, I'm Steve Miller. And I'm Matt Zucker. Join us for Lighten Up, where we take a look at the week's current events in Israel and from around the Jewish world through a humorous lens. If you've been paying attention during these crazy times, you know that it's a challenge to parody life anymore. But join Steve and I as we give it the old college try. Not only is being happy an obligation, but life is just too short to take it all so seriously. So join me, Steve Miller. And me, Matt Zucker. For Lighten Up every Monday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5 p.m. Israel, only on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and I'd like to say a few words about anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism has been called the measles of the world. It just never goes away. But in the year 2021, which just ended, it was a it set a negative tone in relation to anti-Semitism. There were several reasons for this. There was a pandemic. Israel had an operation guardian of walls against Gaza and the continued activity of the BDS movement, which relentlessly promoted promoted their false campaign against the state of Israel, which in their opinion is pursuing what they call an apartheid policy in Judea and Samaria. Now, all these events served to create waves of hatred, and Jews around the world have subsequently witnessed aggressive acts of verbal and physical violence. There's an organization called the EU, the European Union Agency for Fundamental Rights, and they published a report in November stating that, uh, like instances from the plague in the Middle Ages were conspiracy theories and new myths arose blaming Jews for the plague. Same thing with the with the pandemic. In 2021, there was an unprecedented increase in anti-Semitism in the United States and across Europe. This new wave of anti-Semitism got uh, bigger during the uh, during the, the year. And uh, throughout the world, from New York to Berlin, there were violent demonstrations against Jews that took place under the pretense of a critique of Israel. So naturally, this upset the Jewish communities in many cities. Many social networks, like TikTok, along with older platforms like Facebook and Twitter, have been used in order to spread hate and incitement. The owners of the various social media platforms, for their part, have not taken significant steps to combat these dangerous developments. So this lack of regard for provoking content makes it possible to fan the flames of hatred with false accusations and encouraging hostility toward the state of Israel. There is a direct relationship between the extent of the incitement on social networks and the number of violent attacks on Jews and synagogues and and businesses in many countries. 
The FBI reports that anti-Semitism remains the number one hate crime in the United States. Recent data demonstrates that Jews and Jewish institutions were the most common target against which hate crimes were committed, and they account for almost 60% of religious hate crime incidents. Uh, earlier in 2021, anti-Semitism in the U.S. rose by 80%, and in the United Kingdom, the number of anti-Semitic incidents increased by 570%. And these are only the ones that are reported. So worldwide attacks against Jews have increased, and unfortunately, in the next calendar year that we're in now, We'll have to continue to tackle the growing wave of anti-Semitism. So perhaps it's time to reevaluate the measures that are employed to combat anti-Semitism. Israel and the international community really need a clear strategy, both educationally and from an explanatory perspective, as well as through legislation that advocates strict enforcement and immediate penalization against those who commit hate crimes. Israel has many friends in the world, and Israel must continue to use our skills and request that our friends join us in efforts to combat anti-Semitism. One such instance occurred after Ben and Jerry's made the shameful decision not to sell their products in Judea and Samaria. So many American states, including Texas, New York, Florida, Arizona, and New Jersey began to retract their investment in Ben & Jerry's parent company, which is called Unilever. Now, this sent a clear message to Unilever and resulted in the loss of hundreds of millions of dollars to that company. So even if Unilever fails to persuade Ben & Jerry to retract its decision, these kinds of steps will serve as a warning to other companies before they consider following the same path that Ben and Jerry went down. The resolution of these uh, states to withdraw their investments from Unilever did not occur in a vacuum. As early as 2015, states like Tennessee, South Carolina, and Illinois enacted laws against the BDS movement. Back in 2016, 15 more states joined, including New Jersey, California, Florida, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Ohio. So over the years, more country, countries in the international arena have also united, united with the United States to battle against the boycott movement against Israel. Now, in Europe, there is legislation against the BDS movement. The laws themselves are good, but unfortunately, they are no longer adequate. Just as in the case of Ben and Jerry, the state of Israel must involve government officials and bring the matter to public awareness so that the countries that are affected can act quickly and effectively. Freedom of expression is a principal value. There's no doubt about that. But freedom of incitement and the encouragement of violence on social networks simply cannot be allowed. Similar to a newspaper that is responsible for the content it publishes on its pages, so must, so, so must social media platforms be responsible for their posts.
Equivalent laws should be applied in both in both scenarios when it comes to promoting offensive or racist content. The situation where anti-Semites are creating false and harmful propaganda and using social networks to reach ever-growing audiences without the social networks themselves being responsible and accountable for removing this damaging content is really very concerning. We live in a very different world today than we did 100 years ago or 50 years ago, and in fact, even 20 or 10 years ago. Because of the social media, just about anybody can say anything and and have what they say distributed to tens and thousands, if not millions, of listeners or customers. And so it's a new world so that anti-Semitism can spread much more rapidly today than ever before. That obviously, it's a good thing that more people can be involved in spreading whatever word they have to say. Maybe it's great for advertisers, but anti-Semitism or anti-Semites are taking advantage of this situation and spreading their ugly message. Uh, also, by the way, a lot of the uh, anti-Israel uh, propaganda, I guess that's the best word to use, is really simply anti-Semitic, but it's hidden under the guise of being opposed to Israel's uh, policies in one form or another. In the United States, there's a consensus, apparently both among Republicans and the Democratic parties, that the social network should no longer be granted immunity from the content published on their platforms, and changes must be made to the law. Most of the laws were written at a time when, uh, first of all, there was only newspapers, and there were newspapers and radio, and then there were newspapers, radio, and television. And now you have a whole new world of the manner in which this uh, information and news are distributed, uh, it's much different than it ever was before, and it's certainly much more difficult to control. And of course, in the free societies, you don't want to just simply control and to censor, but there must be some way of limiting what can be said if what if the words are they used are poisonous. It's it's a whole new world. Uh, I think that following the U.S. legislation, more countries in Europe will have, have to summon up the courage and enact laws that will hold social media platforms accountable. And this will thus allow citizens to complain when there is insightful or anti-Semitic content and, if necessary, enable them to file a lawsuit against the social network if it does not remove the offensive post. This is a very difficult situation. We live. I grew up in the United States where we believed in, in freedom of speech and, and things of that nature. So uh, that the, the way to control the uh, harmful speech is really very difficult today. Now, it is true, and I, I, I'll be the first one to admit it, that anti-Semitism will never be eliminated from our world. It's the measles of humanity. But actions should be taken that can certainly reduce the level of damage and the evil that it sows.
we live in a different world than we did just five years ago. And we want people to be free to say what they want. But we cannot allow poisonous language because it can lead to dangerous actions and be harmful to people, and in, in particular the Jews. Uh, that was a quick review. I'll be back after the break. Are you tired of political correctness and the fear that you might offend someone? I'm not afraid to offend you. Wow, look who's talking tough. One has to be tough to keep sane today. Hi, I'm Alan Skorsky. And I'm Bela Seabrow. And join us every Wednesday for The Definitive Wrap as we interview the most sought-after guests and expose progressive trends that masquerade as enlightenment but actually destroy our freedoms. We are the No Wolf Zone, so buckle up for this exciting show. Buckling up, but I'm driving. <laughs> sure, you can drive, but I'm the navigator. Tune in for the No Nonsense, the definitive rap show, every Wednesday on Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. I want to say a few words about the death of Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa. He was among the world's most respected figures. Uh, he, his face has become a symbol of reconciliation and goodness. However, he has a long history of ugly hatred, really ugly hatred toward the Jewish people, toward the Jewish religion, and toward the Jewish state. And that record has to be kept in mind. He not only believed in anti-Semitism, he actively promoted and legitimated Jew hatred among his many followers and admirers around the world. Professor Dershowitz of Harvard University is now retired, was the only person, to my knowledge, who said something about the truth about Bishop Tudor. Uh, Tudor is no mere anti-Zionist. Although Martin Luther King long ago recognized that anti-Zionism is often serves as a cover for anti-Jewish bigotry, he, Tuto, has minimized the suffering of those killed in the Holocaust. He has attacked the uh, Jewish lobby as too powerful and scary. He has invoked classic anti-Semitic stereotypes about Jewish arrogance, Jewish power, and Jewish money. He has characterized the Jews as a peculiar people and has accused the Jews of causing many of the world's worst problems. 
He also once accused Israel, the Jewish state, of acting in an unchristian manner, in his words. He was a Nobel laureate. He had won the Nobel Prize. And were he not a Nobel laureate, his long history of bigotry against the Jewish people would have landed him in the dustbin of history. There were a lot of other very successful peoples whose reputations have been tainted by their anti-Semitism. Famous people like Charles Lindbergh, like Henry Ford, like the actor Mel Gibson. Tutu won a Nobel Prize, and he did a lot of good things in the struggle against South African apartheid. But he, is, he has to be held accountable for his long history of anti-Jewish bigotry. And there's a record, it speaks for itself, so that history may judge Tutu on the basis of his own words, words that he has often repeated and that others repeat, because Tutu is a role model for so many people around the world. Here are some of Tutu's hateful words most of them carefully documented in a petition by prominent South Africans to terminate him as a patron of the two South African Holocaust centers because he used his status with these institutions as legitimization for his anti-Jewish rhetoric. Now he's being lionized all over the world. He minimized the suffering of those murdered in the Holocaust by asserting that the gas chamber is made for a neater death than apartheid. In other words, the Palestinians who are, in his view, are the victims of Israeli apartheid. They, uh, and he claims that the Palestinians, because of Israeli apartheid, have suffered more than the victims of the Nazi Holocaust. He complained of the Jewish monopoly of the Holocaust and demanded its victims must forgive the Nazis for the Holocaust by refusing to forgive the Jewish people for persecuting others. Tudor asserted that Zionism has very many parallels with racism. And so he is thus echoing the notorious Zionism equals racism resolution passed by the General Assembly of United Nations and subsequently rescinded. Tudor accused the Jews of Israel of doing things that even apartheid South Africa had not done. Tudor said Jews thought that they had a monopoly of God. The, uh, he said that Jews have been fighting against and being opposed to God. He's compared the features of the ancient holy temple in Jerusalem to the feature of the apartheid system in South Africa. He complained that the Jewish people with their traditions and religion and long history of persecution sometimes appear to have caused a refugee problem among others. He implied that Israel might someday consider as an option to perpetuate genocide and exterminate all the Palestinians. Those are his words. He complained that Americans are scared to say wrong is wrong because this Jewish lobby is powerful. 
He accused Jews, not Israelis, of exhibiting an arrogance, the arrogance of power, because Jews are a powerful lobby in America, and all kinds of people want woo the Jewish support. The uh, It's interesting. I quote, he said, you know as well as I do that somehow the Israeli government is placed on a pedestal in the United States, and to criticize it is to be immediately dubbed anti-Semitic, as if Palestinians were not Semitic. He actually compared Israel to Hitler's Germany, to Stalin's Soviet Union, and apartheid South Africa, saying that they too were once very powerful, but they they bit the dust, as will Israel bite the dust. He denied that Israel is a civilized democracy and singled out Israel as a nation guilty of censorship in their media. He urged, actually urged the Cape Town Opera to refuse to perform George Gershwin's Porgy and Bess in Tel Aviv and called for a total cultural boycott of Jewish Israel while encouraging performers to visit the most repressive regimes in the world. He claimed that his God sides with the Jews, who he compares to the Israelites under Bad bondage in Egypt has sought to explain how Israeli actions lead directly to suicide bombings and other forms of terrorism. In other words, he claims Israel causes terrorism against itself by its actions. It's interesting that he was far more vocal about Israel's imperfections than about the genocides in Rwanda or Darfur or Cambodia. He repeatedly condemned Israel's occupation of the West Bank without mentioning the many other occupations that are happening in the world today. While attacking Israel for its collective punishment of Palestinians, which he claims is worse than what apartheid South Africa did, he himself, he, Tudo, called for the collective punishment of Jewish academics and businesses in Israel by demanding boycotts of all Jewish Israelis, but not Muslim or Christian Israelis. This call for an anti-Jewish boycott finds its roots in the the old Nazi uh, thing, Kafnid by Mutin, that said, don't, don't buy by Jews. That's what the Nazis did back in the, in the 1930s. When confronted with his double standard against Jews, Tudor justified it on phony theological grounds. He said, whether Jews like it or not, they are a peculiar people. They can't ever hope to be judged by the same standards which are used for other people. That is a quote from Tudor. That's interesting. There is a name for non-Jews who hold Jews to a double standard. It's called anti-Semitism. Tudor acknowledged having been frequently accused of being anti-Semitic, which he offered two responses, quite laughable. He said, tough luck if you don't like what I say, and my dentist's name is Cohen. The decent people of South Africa have become aware of Tudor's bigotry because they have seen and heard it up close. The rest of the world must now recognize that Archbishop, the Archbishop, 
Archbishop Tutu is not a saint. When it comes to Jews, he is an unrepentant sinner. Even in his death, his bigotry against Jews must be recounted and considered in any honest reckoning of his decidedly mixed legacy and in any decision whether to honor him with statues or other forms of canonization, especially at a time of increasing anti-Semitism throughout, throughout the world. I apologize to the listeners for spending so much time on the topic of uh, T- Bishop Tudor, but he was among the world's most respected figures. He had a recognizable face, but he was an anti-Semite. He actively promoted and legitimated the Jewish hatred among his many followers and admirers around the world. And that is on his record, and it must be kept public. He did a lot of good things for South Africans, but you cannot forgive a famous person being openly and nastily anti-Semitic. And I'm sorry to spend so much time on my program, but I think it is deserving of uh, publication. Thanks for listening. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.